that is in our country, uh, situations at the southern and northern border, uh, the international uh, situation in the Middle East, for instance, crime in our own streets, uh, and uh, we all have these uh, conversations. In the midst of those, my wife and I were uh, usually read from what's called the daily light on the daily path, and we read these words. It's a, a sort of a list of verses all on, this, on a similar topic. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah's everlasting strength. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He's not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to God, God heard. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor even for your body what you shall put on. Behold the birds of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much, more, much better than they? Be not faithless, but believing. Lo, I am with you always. Do you know this one? probably seen that around in various places. What is it? Jenga. It's Jenga, right? And the object of the game, you know, is to take a piece of the puzzle and put it back on the top, reposition it, and look for another one, put it on top. And, of course, the idea of the game is don't be the person that puts the last one on the top so that the whole thing crumbles over. Uh, this is a very good representation of what a lot of people think is going on in the world right now. A lot of people think we live in this massive game of Jenga. And at any moment, somebody is going to take the last piece and put it in the wrong place, and the whole thing is going to come crumbling down. Maybe you're feeling that way, or have felt that way. But you need to remember that a Christian person, you need not fear. Because the fact is that just as we have confessed our faith, we live in the face of a heavenly father. And that heavenly father has the whole thing perfectly in his hand. And not one piece will fall to the ground apart from his will. On his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul 
went to the city of Philippi. And there a church was founded. I'm not going to go into the history of the church. A few years later, he wrote a letter to that body of believers. And that letter was appropriate for their lives, and it is still appropriate for our lives. The letter had some very specific purposes in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He repeatedly encourages them. At the same time, he challenged that church and us in that letter, particularly to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we had received. In God's grace, we are to understand that that letter was written to a group of Christian people. These were people who had professed faith in Christ, had come to Christ, and were trying to live as Christian people. Paul encouraged them to live in harmony with one another, live according to the calling that they had received in the purity of the gospel that they had, re- that they had been given, and thus to live striving for that one purpose and goal, which is holiness before God. Paul says to do that begins with resting and relying on the finished and sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness and his present and future salvation that would be a part of the Philippians' lives. They were saints in Christ, as probably most of you are tonight, in whom God had begun a good work. And Paul's promise was that God would not stop until he had completed it in the day of Christ. Now, the wonderful thing is that all of these exhortations to the Philippians and to us are set into the, in the context of very profound living experience. This was not abstract stuff. The whole letter is written. I've chosen a few verses tonight for our consideration. And uh, I want you to follow along as I read from the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 4 down through uh, verse 9. This is God's word, and it is true. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our study of his word this evening. Father, these are your words, not the words of mere men, a mere man who is writing to a group of people to just uh, build them up, but rather they are the words that you have inspired by your spirit. They came to the Philippians, they've come to the church throughout the ages. 
uh, generation upon generation, and now they come to us, and even tonight, they come into our presence uh, by your Spirit, and we pray that you would use them in our hearts and minds for your glory and our building up in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now these are familiar verses probably to most of you. Maybe they're uh, new to some of you. As I studied them, I tried to determine uh, what is it that Paul is getting at? What's the nub of uh, Paul's purpose uh, here in these uh, few uh, sentences? Uh, what is it in these words that sort of makes them hang together? And I think I, uh, what I find, what I found and, and thought about is the fact that there are so many all-inclusive words in this passage. You might have picked them up as I read. Always. Everyone. Anything, everyone, every, uh, anything, all. In, in the previous chapters of Philippians, Paul has been dealing uh, in a method of teaching by which he brought uh, things into contrast. Uh, those who put confidence in the flesh as opposed to those who put confidence in the spirit. The idea of loss versus gain. I count all things as loss compared to what I gain in Christ. Uh, he speaks of the evil workers as opposed to those who are faithful citizens in God's kingdom. He does that by means of contrast. Now in this passage he's going to take a different teaching technique and he's going to build one thing upon another uh, so that uh, he, he can make his point. He's building now, implied in some of these words that we see here are some negative things. It's not all positive, uh, but it is uh, showing us the realities of life. Bringing together three things that move us toward that single end that he has in mind. Peace in everyone, always, about everything. Is that heavy enough? Peace in everyone, always about everything in the life of every believer. Let me suggest from the text, uh, first of all, three R's, not reading, writing, and arithmetic, but rather rejoice, relax, and rest. Let's look closer at those things. Rejoice. Paul says it there. In the city of Edinburgh in Scotland, there's a famous road that uh, many of the tourists take. It's called the Royal Mile. It runs from the castle in Edinburgh right down High Street to what's called the Holyrood Castle. And uh, the Holyrood Castle is the place where historically, or for most of the last century, uh, Queen Elizabeth had her uh, residence when she was in Scotland. And tradition, tradition has it that uh, on the occasions when the monarch, I don't know if Charlie goes, uh, King Charles goes there or not, but uh, on the occasions when Queen Elizabeth uh, went there, uh, a flag was raised over Holyrood Castle and Holyrood House, and it indicated that the monarch is in residence. And so all of the tourists had to clear the grounds and nobody was allowed uh, near the castle. Well, I bring that up because when my wife was teaching uh, high school, she made uh, a banner that stretched from one side of her room to another. And the banner read, 
Joy is the flag that flies from the citadel of my heart when the king is in residence. Joy is the flag that flies from the citadel of my heart when the king is in residence. Now it's probable that we could look around the room tonight and certainly around our acquaintances, our families, people that we know, the situations that we're in, and see the faces of people who are going through some pretty significant storms in life. Some in the congregation have perhaps, I don't know what's happened here, but uh, some have perhaps suffered the loss of a loved one or a dear friend. Others are ill or fighting with serious disease. Perhaps some are unemployed or having financial troubles. Another's in turmoil with dealing with a child who has wandered away from the faith. And how do I deal with that? Sometimes there's struggles in married life. If you're married, there are struggles in married life. That's sort of a thing, right, with married people? Yeah, that goes on. I can't list them all. But everybody is dealing with something. All of us are dealing with something in our lives. Doesn't it seem a little bit naive to you that given that truth, it's unreasonable for Paul to write about rejoicing in the Bible and especially to put it in the form of a command. He says, rejoice, imperative. Rejoice, always imperative. Oh, didn't you hear me? He says, I say, rejoice. Now, one might think that that's unreasonable. And yet we know that this same principle or thought is repeated in many other places in the scripture. I'll give you, t I'll give you two. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. Jesus said, when you're persecuted, rejoice when they persecute you for my name's sake. Well, maybe Paul could write this. After all, he was a saintly apostle. You know, negative things happen. The sadness of sin and guilt, just contemplating some of the things that I've done in the last week or the last hours can make me sad, can plague me. Suffering, either personal or with other believers, presence of death. But Paul knew all of that, and he knew it personally. He knew it, you know, in the, in the midst of his being. And so he's not writing out of some sort of super elevated spiritual sense. But the thing that we learn from the scripture is it's not the circumstances of life that determine the condition of the heart, the emotions, or even the decisions of the will. In fact, if you consider what Paul writes here to the Philippians, it is our thinking, the way we think, that informs our emotions 
and our wills. In chapter 2, he said, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, he says, I consider everything, everything that I've experienced, everything that I've gained, I consider it. I think about it as a loss compared to what I've gained in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson makes this comment. We think the command to rejoice always to be unusual, even impossible, because we have sometimes been misled into thinking of joy, just as we tend to think of love, as primarily a matter of feelings or some spontaneous emotion. And these, that is, feelings, spontaneous emotions, are perspectives of the heart, and by definition, they cannot be commanded. They simply happen. But that's a distortion of biblical, of biblical teaching. You see, joy, real joy, abiding joy, can be cultivated in the mind and in the life of the believer, independent of circumstances. And that's why Paul adds the next phrase, rejoice in the Lord, oh, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice before the Lord your God. How do you rejoice always about everything? Why you take an active mental account of the things that should commend, that should be commended to your consciousness. Think about some of these things. I'm saved. I have been redeemed from a life of sin in order to live a life that truly glorifies God and enjoys him. My Savior once wore a crown of thorns on his head, but now he wears the eternal crown. And he is the one who rules every thing for my good. He was here. He's gone now, but he's coming back. He's coming back. I have loved ones. I have family. I have some new family members who love me because they love Jesus as well. The gospel is still the best news for the world today. And when people, when it is proclaimed and people hear it by the Spirit, people come to know Jesus. I have freedom. I have freedom to go to the throne of grace to gain real forgiveness when I am guilty, to gain wisdom when I'm dumb, to gain strength when I'm weak, even courage when I'm afraid, and joy when I'm naturally tending to be sad. The bottom line is, I live in the palm of the hand of a God who loves me and is taking care of me. How do we sum it up? Well, some of you uh, might remember this. I've got the joy, 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 joy. It's okay to talk in church. What? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart to stay. That's where joy. So rejoice, Paul says. Second, he says, relax. Verse 5. 
<clears throat> let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is near. It's an interesting word in the Greek. Uh, it's translated in the ESV, reasonableness. Uh, it's one of those words that we don't have a single equivalent to the Greek in our own language. William Hendrickson says it combines the following. Get this. Forbearance, genealogy, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, and generosity of spirit. Is that heavy enough for you? Be that way, Paul says. Another commentator indicates that it's the principle of not pressing the technicalities of justice and equality to the minute point. That's a good definition for Orthodox Presbyterians. What's the natural negative thing that's sort of implied by that word? What do we say about people who are all bundled up with unnecessary concerns and impatience about this? Don't we say that person is uptight? That person is, is high strung. Well, Paul comes to us here and he says to that person, chill out, dude. Take it easy. Relax. Let your reasonableness, let your kindness and gentleness be known. Why? Well, there's a simple way. Those things need not control you. Those anxieties or those frustrations need not control you because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, that could be understood in two ways. In the New Testament, uh, we're given the point that after the death and the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, that since the coming of the Holy Spirit, the very next big thing that's going to happen in the universe is the coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. To complete the redemption that he began. From that perspective, the Lord is near. It could happen before we end this sermon, which you might be pleased with. Uh, but before the end of this meeting, the service, the Lord could come. The Lord is near. And every believer can daily, can daily live in the expectation. The Lord is coming. And he's coming soon. But then there's the other truth of this. And we know it from Scripture. Psalm 40, 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. We've already talked about that, haven't we? The brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 145, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. The Lord is near. Relax. The old spiritual tells it this way. You can't hurry, my God. No, no, you just got to wait. You got to trust him and give him time no matter how long it takes. He's a God you can't hurry, but he'll be there. Oh, don't you worry. He may not come when you want him, but he's right on time. Relax. The Lord is near. And then the third R is rest in verse 6. <clears throat> Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 
It's a strange word in connection with uh, this idea that Paul says, don't worry or don't be anxious about anything. Rest? Well, you see, worry is a machine. Worry is a machine. It, it consumes the energy of life, the energy of the mind, the energy of the emotions. It does that by manufacturing all the potential possibilities of what might happen, but things over which we have absolutely no control and can't do anything about. Several years ago, again, I use old illustrations, but they're, they're still good. Uh, any of you remember the, uh, the first couple of generations of Texas Instruments calculators? So I got a couple of nods. The little black ones, you know, with the red numbers, and you could program these scientific calculators. Well, I went to a, visit a woman one day, and <clears throat> as I walked into their kitchen, uh, she had one of these calculators on her little table in her kitchen, and uh, the numbers were just going like crazy across. I said, Barbara, what are you doing with this thing? And she said, uh, I've programmed it to find all the prime numbers. And I said, why? And she said, because it can. That's what worry is. Worry is constantly finding all the prime numbers. Consumes great, amount of ener great amounts of energy, and for what? For no good purpose whatsoever. The practice of worry and anxiety is to be consumed with the non-essential details of what might go wrong, of what might I be able to do right. If you want to cover every single detail of life so that you can be in control, and most importantly, you want to please all the people all the time. That's what worry does. And worry can easily be that major addiction of the mind and the heart that's no less draining to the resources of life than is alcohol, heroin, gambling, or any of the other bad addictions. A Christian need not worry. In fact, Jesus commands us, do not worry. But now you can observe that what Paul does here in this passage is he gives us the antidote. A biblical pattern to achieve all three. Relax, rest, and be joyful. And it also is all-inclusive. You find it there in that verse. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is not apathy. Prayer is active. Prayer as a frame of mind with the humble response of gratitude for that which has gone before and the, the assured confidence of that which we petition God for in all things. One author said we need to recognize that we are suspended between the past the present, and the future blessings of God. You've heard of living in the present, now, conscious of the past blessings of God, the already and the not yet, right? That's where we live as believers. And that's where we pray. If joy is the flag 
over the citadel, then prayer is the sentinel. It's the guard on the wall of the, of the citadel. In fact, that's the very word that he uses there in verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says that it is prayer that brings us to this place where there is peace with God. And that lays before our hearts. Peace with God. Now Paul has a couple of suggestions to us to help us even in our prayer. And you find that in verses 8, particularly in verse 8. All of our human minds have to be set on something. There's a point of focus. There's some point of concentration. And it's normal and natural for us as fallen human beings to first think about the negative things. Now I want to put up a little bit of a caveat here so that you'll listen to what Paul says and remind you that this is not Zig Ziglar. This is not Joel Osteen. This is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who says to you, these are the things that you are not to ignore in the whole counsel of God for improvement in your sanctification in this particular area of life. And so he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole list for you, but take the challenge in your own quiet time this week. Just make a list of some specific examples that you can think about, put in your mind, concentrate on in these categories that Paul gives here. You might have to look up a word in the dictionary to get the nuance of each word. But you can, be, you can begin, you and I can begin to train our minds with meaningful, positive, praiseworthy things. Paul makes an additional comment. Not just think about these things, but he says, find an encouraging model for yourselves. There in the ninth verse, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, in some other believer, in some other Christian, look to that. Find someone that you know, that you trust in the church, a relative, somebody that you know, who can encourage you. You can be richly encouraged by the lives of the saints who have walked the path before you. Read a good book. A good book, Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Knowing God, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Ask other believers, what have you been reading lately? They'll tell you. It can be encouraging. And then Paul leaves us with this simple, it's, it's profound, but it's simple, benediction. He says, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. Peace of mind, peace of heart, peace in life, all to his glory. In the last words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. You remember at the end 
of the chapter in verse in chapter 13 where he talks about a troubled heart let not your hearts or chapter 14 let not your hearts be troubled he says at the end of that chapter as a concluding statement peace peace i leave with you my peace i give you not as the world gives do i give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid not as the world, not as the world. They're dependent upon circumstances. They're, they're dependent upon uh, my understanding of what's going on. Jeremiah tells us that the people make a big mistake by creating cisterns that don't hold water. Christians, you have a cistern that holds water, and that is Jesus. Real peace, rejoicing, resting, Relaxing and godly peace comes from those precious words that we hear throughout the scripture. Fear not, little flock. I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. May we know that peace that passes the understanding of our lost and panicked world. That peace always has its source as he provides a real basis for that peace in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why we trust in him. Let's pray. Father, in your word, you tell us that uh, we can be courageous, we can be discerning, we can be fruitful, we can be loving, we can be at peace with joy, relaxation, and rest. Because of the work of Jesus, who died and rose again and reigns, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, who has entered into our hearts, so that we might know you and trust you and live for you. We thank you for those precious promises, and we pray that you would allow us to take Paul's words as they've been spoken to us tonight by your Spirit and the, and the Scripture, to enliven our hearts to that peace which passes understanding, that we may show in the world in which we live, on our jobs, where people are in panic, upset, fearful, where we may show to them the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they may ask us, where does that come from in you? And we can tell them, I have peace because of what Jesus has done for me. And my Father who is in heaven, who says he will be with me always, even to the end of the world. Give us this grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.